The subject we're going to consider tonight is why God allows suffering. A subject that's a very personal one and a very important one and we hope that by the end of tonight you will come to understand this subject better and be in a position to understand more fully God's purpose. Well, there is in everybody an insatiable desire to have unmixed good in their life, to experience happiness, and that's a reasonable desire of everybody to have. To have and to experience a fulfilling life that's free from adversity. But our reality is very different, isn't it? So often our life is interrupted by unplanned events, things which are out of our control and things which severely impact at times our quality of life. And it seems like an endless cycle, doesn't it? The times are few and far between where we have everything just going right. How often do we have job security, a good boss, good health, fulfilling personal relationships and no stress? If we live by ourselves, we may experience loneliness. If, on the other hand, we are part of a family, then what we find is that we often experience the adversities, the tribulations of other family members, and we share in those experiences. And when things just seem to be going right, then in a moment, life can change very quickly. And tomorrow can be very different to today. We might experience the diagnosis of a serious illness, the tragic car accident, or a child is born with severe mental problems or health issues. And the effect of that personal tragedy, as we know, can last for many weeks or months or even years. And when we look beyond our own country, what do we see? We see war, famine, child abduction. We see slavery, oppression, violence, and the list goes on. And has there ever been an age that is free from war, poverty, or famine? And even in relatively recent times, in the 1940s, we know that there were six million Jews who were exterminated throughout Europe. So it's logical and reasonable to ask, why does God this, allow this to happen? If there is a God who is the creator of all things, why does he allow suffering if indeed he has the power to stop it? And you know... That's a reasonable question. And it can be a dilemma in some people's minds, a dilemma which causes them to lose trust in God, to even turn away from God and to become atheist, or perhaps to ask themselves the question, if I am experiencing all this tribulation, what does that say about my relationship with God? Does he hate me? Well, where do we, find, where do we look to find the answer to that dilemma? If, on the one hand, we say there is no God, 
then there's nowhere to look. We have to accept that life is what it is and that there is no hope. And furthermore, we have to accept that the cause of most of man's present ailments are self-inflicted and caused by man himself. If, on the other hand, we believe there is a God, then we do have somewhere to look. And that place is, of course, the Bible. The Bible is the place where we're going to find out that God has a plan with mankind and we're going to find out how suffering plays a part in that plan. So our aim tonight is very simple. We want to consider two things. We want to find out from the Bible why God allows suffering. But more importantly, we want to see that there is, in fact, a hope without suffering. What we want to do to begin with is to help to put our present experiences, our present order of things in context. Now, it may surprise you to know that there was a time upon the earth when it was free from sorrow and suffering. You know, in the beginning, when God created the earth and mankind upon it, and put the first human couple upon it, it was made very good. We read in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. In other words, all things, including mankind, were created not perfect, but note that, very good. And so, as we will see, the man was capable of dying, but not dying. Think about what that would have been like. There was no disease. There was no violence or oppression. There was no starvation or sorrow. Instead, there was peace and harmony between man and God. That was the state that existed when God first created the earth. I want now to, to fast forward to a time, a future time, when the earth won't be in a very good state, it will be in an even better state, in a perfect state. Here are some words that describe that future time that God has installed for the earth. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. That's a time when mankind shall have gone through a probationary period. It's a time when there shall not only be never-ending life, as it says here, there shall be no more death, but there's going to be a quality of life that's unsurpassed, that the earth has never experienced. And so it's a reasonable question to ask, isn't it? If God is able to bring to pass a a situation on the earth where there is perfection, where there is no suffering, 
then why didn't he do that in the first place? It's a good question. Why didn't he create the earth in a perfect condition in the beginning? Well, let's have a think about what that would mean. It would mean that mankind would be created as immortal beings that were not capable of disobeying God. And that wouldn't be satisfying to to God or man. Think about the implications of the earth having been created initially in a perfect state. Think about these few points. If mankind was created perfect, there would be no choice on man's part. Whether you would like it or not, you would find yourself in this never-ending situation that you had no say in and you couldn't have an opinion about it. Secondly, there would be no grace on God's part. There would be no scope for God to be gracious. You've never done anything wrong and there was no need of grace. In a sense, you didn't need anything from God and you didn't feel that you owed God anything. Thirdly, there would be no real thankfulness to God. Now, we might say, but surely we would appreciate how good our situation was, and true to a point. But you know, real thankfulness comes when we've experienced what it's like to be without having everything as we would just want it. Thankfulness comes from firstly being without. And we know, don't we, if we're parents, If you spoil your child from the time they're an infant, what sort of child that grows up to be? Next, there would be no scope for mankind's love to be tested. If we were created perfect, we would never have experienced free will and never had our love of God tested. And finally... And most importantly, and that's why we've bolded these words, if, we, if creation was made perfect in the beginning, then there would be no development of character. We would not have learned by experience what it means to be kind, unselfish, to show empathy, to show trust, to show faith, hope and love. But you know, God does have a plan and his plan meets all of those requirements. And not only that, it's a plan that is satisfying to mankind, it's satisfying to God and ultimately it's very rewarding to man. We may say, But what right does God have to develop a plan that involves suffering? Well, there's two parts to answering that question. Firstly, if there was a better way, God would have done it. Well, was there a better way? Let's just think for a moment about God and his wisdom and the wisdom that he's put in place in his plan. Is God's plan the best plan? Well, think about this. God says of himself, 
For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And if we think that we're smarter than God, then perhaps God would say to us what he said to someone who challenged him on this issue of justice. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And we can all answer that question for ourselves, can't we? But you say, okay, given that God is smarter than us, we accept that, but convince me that I should worship a God that allows suffering as part of his plan. Well, that's where the second part of the answer comes in. You see, under God's plan, the return on investment for mankind is immeasurable. Under God's plan, there is suffering. But let's put it in perspective. We may experience suffering in this lifetime, but how does that compare with an eternity of joy? Think of it this way. If we were to represent our lifetime as, in, in terms of a measure as one millimetre of distance, what distance would we use to represent eternal life? Think of any distance that you can imagine from the earth to the other side of the universe and perhaps back again an infinite number of times and it still wouldn't be a fair representation. I'm not trying to trivialise suffering that we may experience but we need to keep it in perspective. Our life is in comparison as a small point in time compared to eternal joy that God promises for those that seek him. One psalmist in the Bible expressed the relativity of those two things this way. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. So what then is this plan that God has that satisfies all of the requirements of both himself and mankind. It's a very simple plan. It's a plan that most parents would like to enjoy, and that is to have a family. Not just a family, but a family who are like him morally. Morally, mentally, and physically. Now, to use a metaphor, we might say that God wants his character to dwell in us or he wants to be in us. That's the sort of language that the Bible uses. And let's look at a quote that the Apostle Paul wrote that really in a nutshell sums up God's purpose. The Apostle Paul put it this way, that God may be all in all. What does that mean? Quite simply, when God's character is in everybody, then his plan will have been fulfilled. Well, Adam and Eve's sin, sorry, I should say, the concept of a parent wanting their child to be like them is not foreign to us. 
A father gets pleasure from, from seeing a son that wants to be like him because he loves him. Now let me ask you a question. Imagine you're a father or a mother. What pleasure would you get from a child who, was, who copied you, but not because they wanted to, but because they were compelled to? Well, their, their behaviour would be as predictable as a train on a track, wouldn't it? And for that reason, God created mankind with free will. And we read of that creation of the first man and woman in the early chapters of the Bible. We read this. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now, subsequently, God provided a wife for Adam, who was the first man, and God gave both of them the scope to exercise free will in making life choices. You know, God gave to Adam everything that he needed. He gave him happiness, he gave him health, a beautiful companion, beautiful surroundings and also beautiful food. There was no sorrow, there was no suffering, only pleasure. Not only that, Adam had free and open communication with God's messengers, the angels. So God gave Adam the opportunity to demonstrate his love for God. And how did he do that? Well, he tested Adam's love for him by giving him a commandment. And we read of that commandment in Genesis chapter 3. This was how Adam's love for God was tested. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So note that there was a consequence for disobeying God's command. And that consequence was death. So here we have the first mention in the Bible of suffering. To eat of the forbidden fruit would result in Adam and Eve becoming mortal and eventually dying. You know, when you think about it, this commandment was really easy to keep. God said, look, eat anything that you like, but don't eat of that tree over there. You can eat anything and everything, but just don't eat of that tree. I've given you all that you need, Adam. I've given you all that you need for happiness. Just please don't eat of that tree. You know, there was a challenge facing Adam and that was, quite simply, would he please God in doing what he was asked or would he please himself? Would he be content with having what he needed or would he grasp at what he wanted? You may know the choice that Adam and Eve made. Sadly, we read, and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat 
and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. <clears throat> and as a consequence, God followed through on his promise. Adam and Eve became dying creatures and suffering entered the world for the first time. And God said to Adam, because you've broken my commandment, Adam, cursed is the ground for your sake. It's going to bring forth thorns and thistles and you're going to decay and you're going to return to the dust from whence you were made. Now this was a watershed, a huge milestone in the history of mankind. So here is an important point to note, that suffering entered the world not by God, but by man, through the actions of man, through sin. And what we find is that Adam and Eve's mortality resulted in that mortality being passed on to all mankind. They became mortal, and so too did the descendants that came from them. But not only that, as a result of their sin, Adam and Eve not only became mortal, but they, they developed a waywardness or a propensity to sin that has passed down to all of their descendants, including you and I. So we might ask, why did God attach consequences to disobedience? Well, in all God's actions, he is governed by love. But we must understand that God will never compromise his morality. God is a moral being and with God there are things which are right and there are things which are wrong. God loves good and he hates evil. And so great is God's hatred of evil that he put in place a moral law in the garden. And Paul describes that law this way. Quite simply, the wages of sin is death. That's God's moral law. And he communicated that to Adam. He explained it to Adam. And Adam understood that that was a punishment, that if he disobeyed God, there would come a point in time when he would cease to exist. And I might just add that Adam had no concept of going to heaven after he died. He understood he was simply going to return to dust. Now, we live in an age when these sorts of principles are foreign to us. The world says that there is no such thing as absolute morality. And so they call evil good and good evil. Seeing things from God's point of view requires a paradigm shift in our way of thinking. So in summary then, why did God condemn Adam and Eve to death for sin? The answer is because of God's moral character. He could not deny himself. He could not and will not trivialise sin because of who he is. 
just want to spend a moment thinking about how far-reaching the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin were and how that extended down through mankind. Just as God gave a commandment to Adam and Eve, he gave other commandments to his people Israel in, in subsequent time. The nation was promised profound blessings if they kept those commandments. But at the same time, God made it clear that there were dire consequences if they disobeyed. And sadly, they did. They turned their back on God and said, God, we don't want you in our life. And God said, okay, you've made the choice, but there are consequences when I withdraw my favour from you. Here, are, is a, here is a list of consequences that God gave for disobeying the commandments that he gave to Israel. Pestilence, sickness, warfare and exile, drought, disease, oppression, plunder, child abduction, that is their children would be taken from them by the enemies around them, poverty, cities besieged, plagues, derision and slavery. You know, when you look at that list, it pretty much covers a lot of the adversity that all generations of mankind have experienced. Israel disobeyed God and these sufferings followed it. It was self-inflicted and could have been avoided. So it's, we've considered that God attached consequences to disobedience. He put in place a law that tested man's love for him. But we might then ask, okay, but where is God's love seen in how he brought consequences for sin? Well, first of all, you'll note that when Adam and Eve sinned, they began a dying process. They didn't die straight away. And that's the first point, that in his love, God gave them opportunity to recover themselves from their death-stricken state. They were granted a period of life in which they could repent and obtain forgiveness. That's the first point. But furthermore, his love is seen in the fact that he put consequences upon them, not just simply to punish them, but to develop them that they might be corrected. When we say developed, in what sense are we talking about? We're talking about development of character. Now, we won't look at this, but there are numerous times in the Bible where the refinement of our character is likened to the refinement of metals, such as gold. The refinement of metals by the application of heat. You heat, for example, gold and all the dross rises to the surface and then it can be removed and scraped away. And, you know, it's not hard to understand how that, that analogy applies to us. God applies tribulation. If we respond in the right way to that tribulation, it results in those imperfections in our character being removed. 
When writing to the believers in Judea, the Apostle Paul had this to say about this development of our character. He said, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as with son, you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? <clears throat> now you may remember that we said earlier that God has a plan and that plan is to have a family. A family of sons and daughters who are morally like him. That's always been God's plan even before sin entered the world. What Paul is talking about here is how we become his sons and daughters. He's talking about the process of sonship. Now note that Paul says, God will discipline every son he receives. And you know, that's consoling when you think about it, to know that when we experience suffering, it doesn't mean that God hates us or is vindictive. Every son, God says, would be disciplined. And you know that even applied to his own son. Though he, Jesus, were a son, <clears throat> excuse me, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Even though Jesus Christ was the Son of God, he was not born with character. That was something that he had to develop. Now, the purpose, as we've said, of God's discipline is not destructive. It's to be productive. In what way does God's discipline make us productive? Well, a few verses later on, the Apostle Paul had this to say. <clears throat> For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So discipline is intended to develop God-like attributes like righteousness. But that only takes place, as the Apostle says, if we're trained or exercised by it. That means that during trial we, we turn to God and not away from him. In trial, we turn to God in prayer and we also consult his word for direction. That's what it means to be trained by trial. <clears throat> Might have a drink of water if you don't mind, please. So Christ, Christ spoke of the development of our characters in these words. I am the true vine... And my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. You know, God has designed creation itself to teach these principles about the need to to prune a plant in order for it to 
to develop more fruit. He's intended that that principle in nature is there to teach us about our own development in bringing forth fruit. In the course of preparing for this talk, I did some, some reading about what's involved in pruning grapevines, for example. And there were two things that I thought were, were really interesting with respect to our, our subject tonight. The first is this, that pruning is the removal of plant material to maximise fruit production. So note that the, the purpose... Thank you. The purpose of removing those canes of, of, on the plant is so it will actually be more fruitful. And so it is with us that God removes the unwanted aspects in our life and removes from our life those things that are hindering our moral development. But notice also this, that a properly pruned grape has 80 to 90% of its growth removed. So that tells us something about what we can experience in the process of sonship. So what's the lesson in practical terms? God's going to shape us. He's going to shape us using adversity as one of his tools. God doesn't only allow suffering, but uses it as a tool for the development of our character. I'd like to consider for a moment a man who experienced this process of sonship. A man who experienced great adversity. And I want you to take note of how he responded to that experience. We're talking here about the Apostle Paul. God chose the Apostle Paul. He wasn't an originally a believer, as you may know. In fact, he persecuted the believers. And God called that man for a special work. And that work was to preach the gospel throughout the Roman world. <clears throat> now, when God called him, he said, he is a chosen vessel to bear my name before the Gentiles, that is the non-Jews, and kings and children of Israel. And note this, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And what, when God says his name's sake, he's talking about the work that the Apostle Paul would do in extending a knowledge of God, of his purpose, preaching in other words. I'd like you to pause and just think about the suffering that this man experienced of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. A man was allowed to be whipped 40 times. So what the apostle is saying here is he was whipped 39 times on five occasions. That would probably, just one of those whippings would have been enough for us. He was whipped five times. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned, thrice I suffered shipwreck, a night and a day have I been in the deep. 
in journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen or nations, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils amongst false brethren, in weariness and painful, painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. And you might ask the question, for what purpose are we looking at that great list of the sufferings of the Apostle Paul? Simply this, that when he got to the end of his life and he looked back upon all of his experience and all that he suffered for God's name's sake, this is what he had to say. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. You know, the Apostle understood that analogy that we made about our life being represented by a millimetre of, of distance and eternal joy stretching forever. He understood and appreciated that. And you know, the man was so remarkable, he went even further than that. He said, I'm prepared to endure suffering that I might come to understand Jesus Christ even more. So far, we've talked about how God allows or even uses suffering to shape the lives of believers. What about those that aren't believers? The earthquakes, the famines that occur throughout the world? The short answer is God allows non-believers to experience adversity that they might become believers. We know, don't we, when, God, when things are going well or even when things are going okay, we generally don't ask hard questions about life. Neither do we turn to God. If we're content with this life, generally we don't concern ourselves with what's beyond this life. If there wasn't any suffering the chances are that many who have sought out God would not have done so if they had everything going just right. And you know, therefore it's not surprising that sadly, most die without a hope. As Jesus Christ himself said, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the way, sorry, straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Now when Christ says, when he refers to life, Narrow is the way which leadeth unto life. He's talking about eternal life. 
and he says, few there be that find it. So are there examples of unbelievers who have experienced adversity and as a result of that have responded and become believers? Well, yes, there is. You may have heard of the man Moses that God sent down into Egypt to to bring his people Israel out of Egypt. And so God made a, a demand on Pharaoh to let God's people go, to which Pharaoh refused. And his refusal brought ten plagues upon that nation. And as a result of that, thousands, many thousands of Egyptians died in those plagues. But, you know, that one of the positive consequences, however, was that it caused some Egyptians to search out the God of Israel. And so when Israel did eventually leave Egypt, they were accompanied by many Egyptians. You know, our world is currently in the grip of a plague. We can ask the question, why has God allowed over 500,000 people to die? Or we can use this as an opportunity to pause and consider and say, what is life really about? The world is subject to time and chance. We're here today. We may not be here tomorrow. God has allowed uncertainty that it might prompt us to think about beyond tomorrow, to ask questions and to seek answers. You know, it's, it's easy, isn't it, just to look at the calamities around us and think, oh, that's terrible. Um, you know, why did God that allow, why did God allow that to happen? I'd like you to think about the words of the Lord Jesus Christ who who commented on two calamities that took place in his lifetime. One was a mass murder and the other was a natural disaster where a tower fell upon 18 people and killed them. And his comment on on the suffering that resulted is instructive. He said this, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all Galileans, because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Or those 18, upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them, do you think they were the the greatest sinners on the earth? I tell you, no. But except ye repent, ye shall likewise perish. So here's our call to action. To heed the wisdom of Christ, to use the opportunity we have while we've got life, to ask questions like the Egyptians did. Tell me about your God. What's his purpose? What's the purpose of all this suffering? And is there a better future that I can be part of? 
I want to spend just the remaining few minutes that we have together to talk about three men. These men had a number of things in common. They all lived at the beginning of the first century. They were all um, accused of committing crimes worthy of death. They were all sentenced to death by crucifixion. They were all put to death on the same day in the same place. Now, whilst these three men had those things in common, they differed in one important respect. Two of them were guilty of criminal offences. The other was completely faultless. These men, these three men, experienced what is commonly agreed to be the greatest form of suffering that mankind has ever experienced. It was the most gruesome, gruesome, pathetic sight that we could imagine. Three men who were nailed to pieces of timber, slowly dying. And it all happened in God's sight and God allowed it to happen. And the predicament of these three men provides us with a case study about suffering. So who were these three men? Well, you may have guessed that the, the one who was faultless was Jesus Christ. This man never did anything wrong. As the Bible says, he was tempted in all points, like as we are, yet without sin. The governor of the time, Pontius Pilate, said, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to his crucifixion. <clears throat> One of the thieves that was crucified with Christ said, This man has done nothing amiss. And finally the centurion who supervised his crucifixion said, Truly, this was a righteous man. Why then did he suffer the death of a criminal at the hands of the Romans? Well, the short answer is that he was falsely accused by his fellow um, Jewish countrymen. His trial was a mockery and the Jews incited the Romans to put him to death. What do we know about the other two men? In Matthew 27 and verse 38, we learn that there were two thieves crucified with him, one on the right and the other on the left. And what we're going to see and what's of relevance to us tonight is that these two thieves represent two classes of mankind. <clears throat> now we're told that Jesus was reviled by those that walked past, by the chief priests, by the rulers of the people and also initially by both thieves. And their torment to Christ was, as they hung on the, Christ, on the cross, if you're the king of Israel, come down from the cross. But what we read in the Bible is this, that in the process of time, one of the thieves began to think about his predicament. This man went down a thought path 
that led him to understand why God allows suffering. We want to walk down that thought path with him. The thief knew of Jesus of this thief knew of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus had for three years preached throughout the country. He had done many miracles, and this man was aware of that. He observed that he was a unique man. He had seen and heard enough of this man to be able to make the declaration, this man has done nothing amiss. He was a righteous man. And he also came to believe that this man was who he said he was. He was the Messiah, the promised, or the one promised in the Old Testament, who would come to his people and provide a means for them to be delivered from their sins. Well, that's not all that the thief observed about Jesus. You know, the process of crucifixion would normally, in, would normally require several soldiers to restrain the victim as he was pierced with nails and nailed to the cross while he lay on the ground. And as they drove those nails into the, into the person, he would scream vile obscenities at his captors. But with Jesus, it was different. He didn't resist or complain, but submitted peacefully to the hands of his captors. The thief also observed that as people walked past and they reviled Christ, that he reviled not again. And when he suffered, he threatened not. And the thief concluded that truly this man was a righteous man. He realised that this man was in his predicament because of his obedience to God. He had preached God's word and that had brought him into collision with those that hated what he had to say. The thief therefore concluded that he had no grounds on which he could seek to be freed from the same condemnation that Christ was under. And he needed something to evoke from him that newly formed conviction. And it came when the other thief reviled Christ. And I'm just going to read those words to you from Luke chapter 23, verses 39 to 41. <clears throat> so we're reading here about the words of the other thief who was, we might say, unrepentant. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. But the other thief answering rebuked him, saying, Don't you fear God, seeing you're in the same condemnation? We indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man... He's done nothing amiss. Now I want you to keep in mind this, that when a person is crucified, the weight of their body pulls down upon their chest and the only way that they can breathe and speak 
is when they push down on their feet, which are nailed to the cross. So every syllable that you say when you're crucified is agonising. This man was prepared to experience that agony to make that declaration of what he now believed. You know, as we said, these two men represent two classes of people, we might say. And really, at the end of the day, we're either identified with one of those thieves or the other. The one said, God or Christ, you have the power to stop this suffering. And you won't. And because you won't, I hate you. The other thief said, I can see that you, Christ, have accepted that your condemnation is, is just. That you have accepted the suffering that God has placed upon you, the suffering that has come about through obedience. I'm prepared to accept that, not only for you, but for myself. And to that man, Christ promised eternal life. So we have to decide, really, in a sense, which, which thief we're going to be identified with. One to one was promised. Christ said, I promise you today that you're going to be with me in paradise. That's the paradise that we spoke about at the beginning of this presentation. A time when the world is going to be without sorrow and suffering there is a period of suffering that is part of this present order of things. But it's not always going to be that way. God has intended that we might benefit, that we might develop, that we might become more like him by the experience of tribulations that turn us to him and we consult him in prayer and through his word. So the choice is, is ours. The question is, which thief do we want to be associated with? That paradise that Christ promised to the thief who was repentant is the paradise that is expressed in these words in Revelation. These are the words we, we turned to earlier tonight. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. So we would leave you with this final thought. Our hope is that you might be like those Egyptians that if you are not a believer, that you might be caused to think about the reason for God's sufferings that he allows the world to go through. And not only so, but that you might seek to be part of that future that he's promised to those that are willing 
to be moulded by his tribulations and by his discipline and become part of that wonderful divine family to live for eternity in a world at peace. Thank you.